Hi everyone and welcome to the Sanya Faruqi show. Today we have somebody joining us from London, Rabina Khan. She is one of the most influential hijab-wearing politicians in London, serving as a liberal democrat councillor in the borough of Tower Hamlets. She is known for her passionate support of causes such as stopping youth knife crime and building more social housing. Her decade in politics has been both controversial and turbulent, but as she says, defining who you are is all about how well you rise when you fall a former special advisor to lord newby in the house of lords rabina is a regular columnist she has written for the independent the guardian half post the washington post and the national uae and regularly appears on the media rabina came to the uk from bangladesh at the age of 3 when her father started work as a docker in chatham She has delivered lectures at the University of Cambridge and on BBC Radio 4 and has just been nominated for the Positive Role Model Gender Award at the National Diversity Awards 2021. Thank you Rabina and welcome to the Sanya Faruqi show. It is wonderful to speak to you today. Thank you Sanya. Thank you for inviting me on your show. I'm really delighted to be here. Likewise. So I'm going to start uh, by talking about your latest book My Hair is Pink under this veil. I finished reading it and it's fantastic. I know we can't talk or reveal too much about the book, but tell us what inspired you to write this book and I'm also very interested in knowing what made you choose this particular title. So the reason why I chose the title is because I had an interaction with this white man in 2015. I stood as um, a candidate in a very toxic environment in Tower Hamlets as a mayoral candidate, as an independent mayoral candidate. And after the hustings, this white man came up to me and asked me what colour my hair was under my scarf. So I said it was pink. I never asked him, Zania, what colour his hair was before he went bald. I thought that would be too insensitive to ask him but the reason why I responded in that manner was to quash any notion that hijab wearing muslim women had no interest in hairstyles or vibrant colors or fashion there's always been this narrative around muslim women that we are seen to be oppressed that we do not have a life that we do not anticipate to become um professionals in different er um sectors or that we become politicians and so that was the reason behind it and of course in in around the world and even in london and um parts of um um the western world you will see people wearing the beanies which is a hat on top of their head so i'm not going to ask them what color their hair is under that hat um and so that was the reason i did that and the interaction then led me to write an article for the huffington post called my hair is pink under this veil and that then led on to delivering a lecture at cambridge university again entitled my hair is pink under this veil and that came in um in the um it was quite significant significant because at the time the former prime minister david cameron had um in some ways insinuated that muslim women were submissive and so that was the context of why i began to think about writing the book and documenting some of my experiences So very quickly tell us a little about the book. So it begins with um, my childhood experiences of coming to the UK when I was about 3. We were the only family of color living on a street in Rochester in Kent which is at the time was very predominantly white populated very conservative. I was the only child of color when I went to a school and at the time they'd never seen someone like who looked like me. There were no pictures of me in a book there were mainly books that were written by white writers 
pictures of young people with blonde hair, blue eyes. There was no one with black hair or brown eyes. And I didn't wear a scarf when I was at school or as a teenager. Muslim women are challenging preconceptions about themselves. It's about time that we are taking our stories back like I have. I'm telling my narrative. I don't want someone else to tell my narrative of who I am, of how I got to where I got to. So if you really want to know whether or not my hair is pink, find out. I still remember um, when I was 15, I went and quietly got my hair permed, but I didn't tell my mum. And I think as we come from cultural backgrounds, South Asian backgrounds, one of the things our mothers would have done is put lots of oil in our hair because they love straight black hair and making sure it's conditioned. I was really influenced by Western music, the bangles who had very long hair, but they, it was permed. So I went and had this perm done, but I hid it from my mother because she would not have liked the fact that I had changed my straight black hair to curly hair. And so I wore this scarf trying to hide it behind her. <laughs> and, and she kept saying to me, she followed me around the house and she said to me, why have you suddenly become so religious? <laughs> you know, you don't wear a scarf. And it was three weeks later when she popped this scarf off my head and she saw all this, these curls coming down. And it was horror on her face as though, what's happened to my girl, my daughter, <laughs> not black hair. And, and I say this story because really and truly every generation has a hair story. My sister had a hair story. She's my youngest one, 10 years younger than me. When she, in her teens, she got her hair dyed. She dyed her hair. My grandmother, my mother were very happy. My father was okay. And now as I have teenage daughters, now they, they've got, um, they dye their hair and they cut their hair in every way. But it shows that we, we move on, we come of age through just um, experimenting with our hair, doing things. And eventually we find our own self. So as you mentioned, you're also a Bangladeshi Muslim. How easy or difficult was it for you growing up in the UK? So when we were children, when we attended school, we went to a school, Church of England school, and we were taught in assemblies to read the Bible. We had to hear sermons. We said, Amen. And we also said the Lord's Prayer, our Father, which art in heaven, every time we had our lunch. And I was a Muslim and we took part in Christmas plays. My um, brother acted as one of the, as King Harold in the Nativity. Uh, my sister was Angel Gabriel. And so we participated in all of these activities, but we also have a profound dignity and pride about our own identity, not just as a Muslim, but as a Bangladeshi. My mother loves to wear her sari. Um, people used to look at her because there was no one else dressed in a sari at the time. And it was something for her that was very, very powerful, that she wore that, she wore her bangles, people looked at her, they asked her questions. And so just as we attempted to integrate within British society, we also had an expectation in our host communities that they would respect our culture and our way of thinking and our language, our songs, our poetry, um, our faith. And so it was give and take. But I do remember growing up how very, very difficult it was for my mother, particularly because she was often called really very racist language from the P word to being called all types of manners of things. And I recall as a child, my mother went to the supermarket and she would be often pushed from the line by white people, even though she was, you know, rightfully in the line, they would often accuse her of stealing just because she had a lot of money to be able to spend in the supermarket. They just couldn't understand 
why this woman of colour had money to spend in a shop and she could buy all of the things that her children wanted. And that, you know, I saw that and that had a profound effect on me. And then in the, my teens, when I was 15 years old, I still remember standing at a bus stop and the white bus driver didn't allow me on the bus. And at the time, the UK was, um, the Prime Minister was Margaret Thatcher. She had given airspace time to um, United States of America. Ronald Reagan was the president at the time. And they were in a conflict with Libya. And at the time, the bus driver didn't let me on. And he said to me, go back to Libya. And he just assumed that I was from, from Libya because he'd seen all this news. And so that's when I realised my faith would eventually have a profound impact on my life. And so as we went into employment, I saw the way people treated me. I took on the scar when I was had my baby, my eldest daughter. And I still remember when I was securing work experience placements, for young people into our hamlets, a white man asked me, and it was very, very hot at the time, it was summer, and he said to me, why don't you take your scarf off, Rubina? You look, you, you're, you know, it's very, very hot. So I just said to him, why don't you take your trousers off if you want me to take my headscarf off? And it's the way we respond as Muslim women in these workplaces. So yeah. that's just some of the things that I touch upon in the book. Talking about, uh, you know, politics, you are also serving as a liberal Democrat councillor in the borough of Tower Hamlets. Tell us, how did politics happen in your life? Um, what was your experience of being a Muslim woman, a Muslim woman of colour during elections and election campaigns? Is it common to see women get into politics? So when I first stood in Tower Hamlets as a councillor, I was given, put in a ward that had predominantly been dominated by men. But over 20 years, no woman could possibly take that seat from um, a man. And I went to this ward. I was expecting at the time, I began talking to people. At the time I was working um, for the BBC, I was a school governor in two different schools. And I thought, who's going to vote for me? Nobody knows me here. And eventually I built the trust and it was women who often spoke to me, women who wanted their voices to be heard. And I just won that election just by three votes. The difference was just three votes. And I remember <clears throat> there were men who said to me, you should just go home. You're not going to win here. You should just go home, look after yourself, have a cup of tea. Um, and for men to keep saying that to me, I thought, well, that was so belittling. And I thought, well, you know, that's fine. You've got your opinion. We will only know on election day. And so I went on and now I've been a councillor for over a decade. But I also had the courage to stand as an independent candidate against mainstream parties twice. And I came second and the margin difference was very small. And what it shows is that women like us from women of colour, women of faith, do have a massively, hugely difficult time. Firstly, from the mainstream um, society, because we are, first of all, seeing we've got stereotypes, we've got racism, we've got prejudice but also from our own communities. There is that misogyny behaviour that they want um, us not to go forward. And we see that across the world. And I believe that as women, we can always support each other. And we really have to be strong in order to move forward in politics. It can be a very toxic environment. So what did your representation mean for the Muslim community in London and especially uh, Muslim women? In particular for Muslim women, what it showed is that a woman in hijab had a place in politics. 
there was someone to represent them from whether or not they were it was standing up for their rights to access housing, to support them to further education, to support their families when there was huge problems with knife crime in order to build a much stronger, greener economy into our hamlets. Um, and one of the things that often women came to see me about was the problems that they might have within their own families, having to move away from very vulnerable and domestic violence situations. Um, and we see that within communities. And it was there for me to give that representation and that advocacy as well. But what was really good for Muslim women was when they saw a woman like me in full council, standing up and talking very, very confidently and telling people that this, I am standing up for this certain cause because I believe this and fighting and advocating and being fearless in doing that. That in itself gives confidence to groups of women who often feel underrepresented. And so I've got a huge range of women who support me here, but is it just women of colour? There are women from working class backgrounds who support me. I mean, COVID has just shown us in this country that absolute inequality as we know, black and Asian people in London and across the UK were twice as likely to die from COVID. And that in itself showed this country and this government how unequal structural inequalities existed from pe for people of colour. And myself and other representatives of faith and um, with different communities, we all worked together to make sure that our communities could be represented and could be supported. We know in the UK, by 2061, we will become a diversely populated country. So there'll be people from black and Asian backgrounds and we will be having a much more diversity in, in the UK. And I think that's what different political parties need to embrace. Yeah. Talking about the current government, uh, you know, recently British Prime Minister Boris Johnson issued an apology for offence caused by his past remarks about Islam particularly calling Muslim women wearing burqas as going around looking like letterboxes and liking their appearance to bank robbers. What is the kind of damage such statements, especially coming from top leadership in the country, do to the Muslim community and especially to Muslim women? Well, my, when my mum heard about it and he made those comments, I, I actually wrote an article about it, but she said to me, if you ever meet Boris, I'm going to give you a hairbrush to tell him to brush his hair. Um, <laughs> and she said that because, you know, she's a hijab-wearing woman and she, she said, at least I brush my hair properly under my veil. Um, and Boris is, you know, our prime minister hasn't brushed his hair in a while, so maybe I should give him a brush. So that's, for her, that was the way she responded sarcastically to his comments. But actually, his comments had a profound effect and damaging effect on Muslim women. Muslim women saw that the attack on them rose. Um, Tell Mama UK, which is the watchdog for Islamophobic attacks, saw a huge increase of um, aggression towards Muslim women, particularly Muslim women in a veil. I know that because when I, after he made those comments, I took a group of women on a, um, to an event. And on the way on the tube, a woman was wearing a niqab. And a white man said, oh, no, let the letterbox go through first. And so there were times on the tube people haven't sat next to me because I wear a scarf. Um, and he, people who make those comments, like, um, for example, our prime minister, previously Jack Straw um, from the Labour Party, made very, very condescending remarks about Muslim women. They don't realise that their comments are then felt by ordinary people 
as though, well, if someone in power can make those comments, then it's fine for me to do, make those comments as well. And it's really important for politicians to be very careful the way they depict um, Muslim women and people of faith, whether they are Hindus, Sikhs or Christians or Jews. They've got to be really careful because it, by demonising people, you push people back and not with you. Um, and I know that um, the Conservative Party had their independent review, and I do welcome that review. 44,000 worded report, which stated very clearly that some of the sentiments and things that were made by within the Conservative Party had an effect and were insensitive to the Muslim community. And he particularly, Professor Singh, who carried out the report, he particularly identified that the senior leadership within the Conservative Party were wholly responsible for the culture in which that um, Muslim communities were demonised. And one of the recommendations that he made, he made a range of recommendations, but one of those recommendations was that for Muslims, for the Conservative Party to carry out a Muslim outreach strategy by which to combine and to make sure that they met and compromised and met Muslim communities halfway. And they should do because there are 3.3 million Muslims living in Britain today, making billions of contribution to the British economy. So not only do we make a contribution to British economy, we're a huge population and we are a big voter sector that should be valued and respected. And so whilst I welcome um, the Prime Minister for apologising, I also give credit to the um, Conservative Party because they were the party in government who introduced Sharia law finance for Muslim communities. So if they can manage to do that, I'm sure they can manage to address their Islamophobic behaviour. Yeah. What are your comments on the hate crime and Islamophobia, which is often targeted using what Muslim women wear or choose to wear? Uh, stigmatization of the hijab, the niqab or burqa. We've seen Switzerland's referendum on burqa and you've written about it in the Washington Post. You said it's an insult to women's rights and dignity. Why are Muslim women being targeted? And do you think instead of moving towards becoming an inclusive society, such bans are creating more othering of Muslim communities in most of the European countries that we're seeing where such bans are taking place? Um, Switzerland had their referendum on the 7th of March and I wrote about it and ironically they had the ban just on the eve of 8th of March which is International Women's Day. So what does it say about Switzerland and women's rights anyway? They were very slow in giving women the right to vote anyway nationally. So when they talk about um, um, running this ban for Muslim women they see they ran it as well because of security measures and that the fact that they were doing this ban is to help or were concerned about troubled women. Those troubled women are women like me, Muslim women, women who wear the niqabs, but they as a government never bothered to ask these women what their thoughts were. They have carried out these um, bans and referendums from France to Belgium to Netherlands, Dutch. Um, all, I mean, the Dutch burqa ban happened as well. What does it say about these countries? It says about these countries in the Western Hemisphere that whilst they advocate the freedom of expression, they have double standards for Muslim women. And that double standards is a structural inequality which perpetuates bigotry, racism, and Islamophobia. 
We only have to look at France. The UK must look at France as our neighbour and criticise France's behaviour towards a candidate who stood, a Muslim woman, who stood um, in an election. Macron's um, party disqualified her because of her headscarf. She simply wore a headscarf. So on one aspect, they advocate freedom of expression. And when a Muslim woman chooses to integrate into French politics, wears a scarf, she's then banned from doing so. What this shows in Europe is the right-wing populism narrative that's rising in Europe. And it's a very, very dangerous part, um, a, a narrative that's taking more and more precedence. And I think COVID has also perpetuated that. And in this country, post-Brexit, that's perpetuated um, often anti-immigrant um, narratives. You only have to look at Italy. The Brothers of Italy, which is a very right-wing party, um, with another right-wing party, won 41% of Italy's vote. Again, it shows the right-wing narrative and the right-wing populist um, politics rising in Europe. And I think Europe needs to have a hard look at itself as to why this is happening. We have the European Union. They've got to do a lot more than what they're doing now to stand up for the rights of Muslims across Europe. Okay. Okay, since we're running out of time, I'm going to ask you my last question. What does feminism mean to you? Feminism, and we often think about white feminism. I don't think white feminism represents women of colour. Um, and I've been critical about white feminism because women of colour, women from South Asian backgrounds, our feminism and our experiences, our lived experiences are so different from white feminism. White feminism is often perpetuated by and advocated by white middle-class women. True feminism is about how you embrace to make changes that advocate for all women, whether they are from different faiths or different races. It is making sure that they have a right to be able to stand up for themselves to make sure that their voice is being heard. Feminism in this country, and I've been on many panels, it's often middle-class white women there's hardly any um, black or Asian women on these panels. And whilst there's been a move towards in addressing that, the problem still lies in the fact that we have severe structural inequality that doesn't recognise race and faith as a unique factor that prevents women from being able to participate in politics or being at the decision-making table. So white feminists, if you are listening out there, I would say to you, Look out for the voices of myself, for the voices of women of colour, women of faith, women who are in politics or as yourself, representation in the media. We all have a right to be able to participate in society's decision-making process and we should not be left behind. All right. On that note, thank you so much, Rabina. It was wonderful to have you on the Sanya Paruki show and thank you for this fantastic discussion. And for those of you who've not read her book, I suggest you do it right away. It's amazing. And yeah, thank you so much again, Rabina. And for those of you who've tuned in, thank you so much for watching. I hope you will subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify, and do subscribe to our newsletter for all the updates on the Sanya Faruqi show.